Chapter One of Our Village, Volume One, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Chapter One. Of all situations for a constant residence, that which appears to me the most delightful is a little village far in the country, a small neighbourhood, not of fine mansions, finely peopled but of cottages and cottage-like houses, messuages or tenements, as a friend of mine calls such ignoble and nondescript dwellings, with inhabitants whose faces are as familiar to us as the flowers in our garden. A little world of our own, close-packed and insulated, like ants in an anthill, or bees in a hive, or sheep in a fold, or nuns in a convent, or sailors in a ship, where we know everyone, are known to everyone, interested in everyone, and authorised to hope that everyone feels an interest in us. How pleasant it is to slide into these true-hearted feelings from the kindly and unconscious influence of habit, and to learn to know and to love the people about us, with all their peculiarities, just as we learn to know and to love the nooks and turns of the shady lanes and sunny commons that we pass every day. Even in books I like a confined locality, and so do the critics when they talk of the unities. Nothing is so tiresome as to be whirled half over Europe at the chariot wheels of a hero, to go to sleep at Vienna and waken at Madrid. It produces a real fatigue, a weariness of spirit. On the other hand, nothing is so delightful as to sit down in a country village in one of Miss Austen's delicious novels, quite sure before we leave it to become intimate with every spot and every person it contains, or to ramble with Mr. White over his own parish of Selborne, and form a friendship with the fields and coppices, as well as with the birds, mice and squirrels who inhabit them or to sail with Robinson Crusoe to his island, and live there with him and his goats and his man Friday. And the footnote to Mr. White. White's Natural History and Antiquities of Selborne, one of the most fascinating books ever written. I wonder that no naturalist has adopted the same plan. End of footnote. How much we dread any newcomers, any fresh importation of savage or sailor, we never sympathise for a moment in our hero's want of company, and are quite grieved when he gets away. Or to be shipwrecked with Ferdinand on that other lovelier island, the island of Prospero and Miranda and Caliban and Ariel, and nobody else, none of Dryden's exotic inventions, that is the best of all. And a small neighbourhood is as good in sober waking reality as in poetry or prose. A village neighbourhood, such as this Berkshire hamlet in which I write, a long, straggling, winding street at the bottom of a fine eminence, with a road through it, always abounding in carts, horsemen and carriages, and lately enlivened by a stagecoach from town B to S, which passed through about ten days ago, and will, I suppose, return some time or other. There are coaches of all varieties nowadays, Perhaps this may be intended for a monthly diligence, or a fortnight fly. Will you walk with me through our village, courteous reader? The journey is not long. We will begin at the lower end, and proceed up the hill. The tidy, square, red cottage on the right hand, with the long, well-stocked garden by the side of the road, 
belongs to a retired publican from a neighbouring town, a substantial person with a comely wife, one who piques himself on independence and idleness, talks politics, reads newspapers, hates the minister and cries out for reform. He introduced into our peaceful vicinage the rebellious innovation of an illumination on the Queen's acquittal. Remonstrance and persuasion were in vain. He talked of liberty and broken windows, so we all lighted up. Oh, how he shone that night with candles and laurel and white bows and gold paper and a transparency, originally designed for a pocket handkerchief, with a flaming portrait of Her Majesty, hatted and feathered in red ochre. He had no rival in the village, that we all acknowledged. The very bonfire was less splendid. The little boys reserved their best crackers to be expended in his honour, and he gave them full sixpence more than anyone else. He would like an illumination once a month, for it must not be concealed that in spite of gardening, of newspaper reading, of jaunting about in his little cart, and frequenting both church and meeting, our worthy neighbour begins to feel the weariness of idleness. He hangs over his gate, and tries to entice passengers to stop and chat. He volunteers little jobs all round, smokes cherry trees to cure the blight, and traces and blows up all the wasp nests in the parish. I have seen a great many wasps in our garden to-day, and shall enchant him with the intelligence. He even assists his wife in her sweepings and dustings. Oh, poor man! He is a very respectable person, and would be a very happy one if he would add a little employment to his dignity. It would be the salt of life to him. Next to his house, though parted from it by another long garden with a yew arbour at the end, is the pretty dwelling of the shoemaker, a pale, sickly-looking, black-haired man, the very model of sober industry. There he sits in his little shop from early morning till late at night. An earthquake would hardly stir him. The illumination did not. He stuck immovably to his last, from the first lighting up, through the long blaze and the slow decay, till his large, solitary candle was the only light in the place. One cannot conceive anything more perfect than the contempt which the man of transparencies and the man of shoes must have felt for each other on that evening. There was at least as much vanity in the sturdy industry as in the strenuous idleness, for our shoemaker is a man of substance. He employs three journeymen, two lame and one a dwarf, so that his shop looks like a hospital. He has purchased the lease of his commodious dwelling, some even say he has bought it out and out. And he has only one pretty daughter, a light, delicate, fair-haired girl of fourteen, the champion, protectress and playfellow of every brat under three years old, whom she jumps, dances, dandles and feeds all day long. A very attractive person is that child-loving girl. I have never seen anyone in her station who possessed so thoroughly that undefinable charm, the lady look. See her on a Sunday in her simplicity and her white frock, and she might pass for an earl's daughter. She likes flowers, too, and has a profusion of white stocks under her window, as pure and delicate as herself. The first house on the opposite side of the way is the blacksmith's, 
a gloomy dwelling where the sun never seems to shine dark and smoky within and without like a forge the blacksmith is a high officer in our little state nothing less than a constable but alas alas when tumults arise and the constable is called for he will commonly be found in the thickest of the fray lucky would it be for his wife and her eight children if there were no public house in the land an inveterate inclination to enter those bewitching doors is mr constable's only fault next to this official dwelling is a spruce brick tenement red high and narrow boasting one above the other three sash windows the only sash windows in the village with a clematis on one side and a rose on the other tall and narrow like itself that slender mansion has a fine genteel look the little parlour seems made for hogarth's old maid and her stunted footboy for tea and card parties it would just hold one table for the rustle of faded silks and the splendour of old china for the delight of four by honours and a little snug quiet scandal between the deals for affected gentility and real starvation this should have been its destiny but fate has been unpropitious it belongs to a plump merry bustling dame with four fat rosy noisy children the very essence of vulgarity and plenty then comes the village shop like other village shops multifarious as a bazaar a repository for bread shoes tea cheese tape ribbons and bacon for everything in short except the one particular thing which you happen to want at the moment and will be sure not to find the people are civil and thriving and frugal withal they have let the upper part of their house to two young women one of them is a pretty blue-eyed girl who teach little children their ABC and make caps and gowns for their mamas, parcel schoolmistress, parcel mantua maker. I believe they find adorning the body a more profitable vocation than adorning the mind. Divided from the shop by a narrow yard and opposite the shoemakers is a habitation of whose inmates I shall say nothing a cottage no a, a miniature house with many additions little odds and ends of places pantries and what-nots all angles and of a charming in and outness a little bricked court before one half and a little flower yard before the other the walls old and weather-stained covered with hollyhocks roses honeysuckles and a great apricot tree the casements full of geraniums oh there is our superb white cat peeping out from amongst them the closets our landlord has the assurance to call them rooms full of contrivances and corner cupboards and the little garden behind full of common flowers tulips pinks larkspurs peonies stocks and carnations with an arbour of privet not unlike a sentry-box where one lives in a delicious green light and looks out on the gayest of all gay flower-beds. That house was built on purpose to show in what an exceeding small compass comfort may be packed. Well, I will loiter there no longer. The next tenement is a place of importance, the Rose Inn. 
a whitewashed building retired from the road behind its fine swinging sign with a little bow-window room coming out on one side and forming with our stable on the other a sort of open square which is the constant resort of carts waggons and return chaises there are two carts there now and mine host is serving them with beer in his eternal red waistcoat he is a thriving man and a portly as his waistcoat attests which has been twice let out within this twelve month our landlord has a stirring wife a hopeful son and a daughter the belle of the village not so pretty as the fair nymph of the shoe shop and far less elegant but ten times as fine all curl papers in the morning like a porcupine all curls in the afternoon like a poodle with more flounces than curl papers and more lovers than curls miss phoebe is fitter for town than country and to do her justice she has a consciousness of that fitness and turns her steps townward as often as she can she is gone to town b to-day with her last and principal lover a recruiting sergeant a man as tall as sergeant kite and as impudent some day or other he will carry off miss phoebe in a line with the bow-window room is a low garden wall belonging to a house under repair the white house opposite the collar-maker's shop with four lime-trees before it and a wagon-load of bricks at the door that house is the plaything of a wealthy well-meaning whimsical person who lives about a mile off he has a passion for brick and mortar and being too wise to meddle with his own residence diverts himself with altering and re-altering improving and re-improving doing and undoing here it is a perfect penelope's web carpenters and bricklayers have been at work for these eighteen months and yet i sometimes stand and wonder whether anything has really been done one exploit in last june was however by no means equivocal our good neighbour fancied that the limes shaded the rooms and made them dark there was not a creature in the house but the workmen so he had all the leaves stripped from every tree there they stood poor miserable skeletons as bare as christmas under the glowing midsummer sun nature revenged itself in her own sweet and gracious manner fresh leaves sprang out and at nearly christmas the foliage was as brilliant as when the outrage was committed next door lives a carpenter famed for ten miles round and worthy all his fame few cabinet makers surpass him with his excellent wife and their daughter lizzie the plaything and queen of the village a child three years old according to the register but six in size and strength and intellect in power and in self-will she manages everybody in the place her schoolmistress included turns the wheelers children out of their own little cart and makes them draw her seduces cakes and lollipops from the very shop window makes the lazy carry her the silent talk to her the grave romp with her does anything she pleases is absolutely irresistible her chief attraction lies in her exceeding power of loving and her firm reliance on the love and indulgences of others how impossible it would be to disappoint the dear little girl when she runs to meet you slides her pretty hand into yours looks up gladly in your face and says come 
you must go you cannot help it another part of her charm is her singular beauty together with a good deal of the character of napoleon she has something of his square sturdy upright form with the finest limbs in the world a complexion purely english a round laughing face sunburnt and rosy large merry blue eyes curling brown hair and a wonderful play of countenance she has the imperial attitudes too and loves to stand with her hands behind her or folded over her bosom and sometimes when she has a little touch of shyness she clasps them together on the top of her head pressing down her shining curls and looking so exquisitely pretty yes lizzie is queen of the village she has but one rival in her dominions a certain white greyhound called mayflower much her friend and resembles her in beauty and strength in playfulness and almost in sagacity and reigns over the animal world as she over the human they are both coming with me lizzie and lizzie's pretty may we are now at the end of the street a cross lane a rope walk shaded with limes and oaks and a cool clear pond overhung with elms lead us to the bottom of the hill there is still one house round the corner ending in a picturesque wheeler's shop the dwelling-house is more ambitious look at the fine flowered window blinds the green door with the brass knocker and the somewhat prim but very civil person who is sending off a labouring man with sirs and curtsies enough for a prince of the blood those are the curate's lodgings apartments his landlady would call them he lives with his own family four miles off but once or twice a week he comes to his neat little parlour to write sermons to marry or to bury as the case may require never were better or kinder people than his host and hostess and there is a reflection of clerical importance about them since their connection with the church which is quite edifying a decorum a gravity a solemn politeness oh to see the worthy wheeler carry the gown after his lodger on a sunday nicely pinned up in his wife's best handkerchief or to hear him rebuke a squalling child or a squabbling woman the curate is nothing to him he is fit to be perpetual churchwarden we must now cross the lane into the shady rope walk that pretty white cottage opposite which stands straggling at the end of the village in a garden full of flowers belongs to our mason the shortest of men and his handsome tall wife he a dwarf with the voice of a giant one starts when he begins to talk as if he were shouting through a speaking trumpet she the sister daughter and granddaughter of a long line of gardeners and no contemptible one herself it is very magnanimous in me not to hate her for she beats me in my own way in chrysanthemums and dahlias and the like gourds her plants are sure to live mine have a sad trick of dying perhaps because i love them not wisely but too well and kill them with over-kindness halfway up the hill is another detached cottage the residence of an officer and his beautiful family that eldest boy who is hanging over the gate and looking with such intense childish admiration at my lizzie might be a model for a cupid how pleasantly the road winds up the hill with its broad green borders and hedgerows so thickly timbered 
how finely the evening sun falls on that sandy excavated bank and touches the farmhouse on the top of the eminence and how clearly defined and relieved is the figure of the man who is just coming down it is poor john evans the gardener an excellent gardener till about ten years ago when he lost his wife and became insane he was sent to st luke's and dismissed as cured but his power was gone and his strength he could no longer manage a garden nor submit to the restraint nor encounter the fatigue of regular employment so he retreated to the workhouse the pensioner and factotum of the village amongst whom he divides his services his mind often wanders intent on some fantastic and impracticable plan and lost to present objects but he is perfectly harmless and full of a childlike simplicity a smiling contentedness a most touching gratitude everyone is kind to john evans for there is that about him which must be loved and his unprotectedness his utter defencelessness have an irresistible claim on every better feeling i know nobody who inspires so deep and tender a pity he improves all around him he is useful too to the extent of his little power will do anything but loves gardening best and still piques himself on his old arts of pruning fruit trees and raising cucumbers he is the happiest of men just now for he has the management of a melon bed a melon bed fie what a grand pompous name was that for three melon plants under a hand light john evans is sure that they will succeed we shall see as the chancellor said i doubt we are now on the very brow of the eminence close to hill house and its beautiful garden on the outer edge of the paling hanging over the bank that skirts the road is an old thorn such a thorn the long sprays covered with snowy blossoms so graceful so elegant so lightsome and yet so rich there only wants a pool under the thorn to give a still lovelier reflection quivering and trembling like a tuft of feathers whiter and greener than the life and more prettily mixed with the bright blue sky there should indeed be a pool but on the dark grass plat under the high bank which is crowned by that magnificent plume there is something that does almost as well lizzie and mayflower in the midst of a game at romps making a sunshine in the shady place lizzie rolling laughing clapping her hands and glowing like a rose mayflower playing about her like summer lightning dazzling the eyes with her sudden turns her leaps her bounds her attacks and her escapes she darts round the lovely little girl with the same momentary touch that the swallow skims over the water and has exactly the same power of flight the same matchless ease and strength and grace what a pretty picture they would make what a pretty foreground they do make to the real landscape the road winding down the hill with a slight bend like that in the high street at oxford a wagon slowly ascending and a horseman passing it at a full trot ah oh, lizzie mayflower will certainly desert you to have a gamble with that blood horse halfway down just at the turn the red cottage of the lieutenant covered with vines the very image of comfort and content farther down on the opposite side 
the small white dwelling of the little mason, then the limes and the rope-walk, then the village street peeping through the trees whose clustering tops hide all but the chimneys and various roofs of the houses, and here and there some angle of a wall. Farther on, the elegant town of B, with its fine old church towers and spires, the whole view shut in by a range of chalky hills, and over every part of the picture trees so profusely scattered that it appears like a woodland scene with glades and villages intermixed. The trees are of all kinds and all hues, chiefly the finely shaped elm, of so bright and deep a green, the tips of whose high outer branches drop down with such a crisp and garland-like richness and the oak, whose stately form is just now so splendidly adorned by the sunny colouring of the young leaves. Turning again up the hill, we find ourselves on that peculiar charm of English scenery, a green common, divided by the road, the right side fringed by hedgerows and trees, with cottages and farmhouses irregularly placed, and terminated by a double avenue of noble oaks the left prettier still, dappled by bright pools of water and islands of cottages and cottage gardens, and sinking gradually down to cornfields and meadows and an old farmhouse with pointed roofs and clustered chimneys, looking out from its blooming orchard and backed by woody hills. The common is itself the prettiest part of the prospect, half covered with low firs, whose golden blossoms reflect so intensely the last beams of the setting sun, and alive with cows and sheep, and two sets of cricketers, one of young men surrounded by spectators, some standing, some sitting, some stretched on the grass, all taking a delighted interest in the game, the other a merry group of little boys at a humble distance, for whom even cricket is scarcely lively enough, shouting, leaping, and enjoying themselves to their heart's content. But cricketers and country boys are two important persons in our village to be talked of merely as figures in the landscape. They deserve an individual introduction, an essay to themselves, and they shall have it. No fear of forgetting the good-humoured faces that meet us in our walks every day. End of chapter 1